we need our researchers to understand and communicate well how they're pitching their research. And it needs to be much, much earlier in the conversation. Hello, and welcome to the Research Valorization podcast series. My name is Sarah Jabber, Manager of Business Development at UIIN, and your host for today. Today's episode is the third and last part of our conversation with Yeti van Ginkel, owner at Care for Impact in the Netherlands, Margaret Evans-Gallia, Executive Director of the Industry Mentoring Network in STEM and co-founder of Women in Science Australia, and Chris Fellingen, Social Sciences and Humanities Lead at Oxford University Innovations and Founder Director of the ARC Accelerator. If you haven't already listened to the previous episodes, make sure to check them out. Continuing with the discussion around valorization and commercialization, our speakers consider the meaning of impact in research and the role that collaboration can play. We hope you enjoy the discussion. There's only so much then that uh, maybe universities can do if they're restricted by uh, the, by their you know the resources that they have. Um, and so uh, maybe the point I had asked before around how do you raise awareness among the researchers or early career researchers should then be redirected to how do you raise awareness among the funding bodies or national agencies on the importance of having these types of initiatives and how can you support them? Maybe uh, Chris, actually, you mentioned at the beginning um, social the concept of social ventures and how Oxford supported that and it's not always about profits and even with the accelerator. How does that work in terms of a funding perspective and uh, you know how did how did the university decide to uh, to enable that well enabling it wasn't too difficult because technically the university's mission is to kind of imp you know improve the world through the impact of its research even though that wasn't officially how we were structured um <laughs> but we could at least point to it uh, the social ventures thing we haven't cracked the funding model for social ventures to be really clear um we are in a, I think we're in a very strong position in the UK because the impact investment sector in the UK is quite large relative to other countries. It's one of the earlier ones. Um, and that's predominantly where we see most of the investment coming. But we actually see it coming from, from probably two places. One would be impact investment and the second would be small but growing field of venture philanthropy. Um, so it kind of depends which area you go into. Uh, if you're in medical sciences, you can access things like Gates Foundation are doing, they're quite willing to kind of get involved in this area because I think they're moving away from one-off project funding to more, okay, can you give us a sustainable solution to this intervention, um, which is great. And obviously that kind of Gates Foundation are quite open to, to social ventures as, as a vehicle behind that. But for a lot of social ventures, it's difficult. And the reason is, is if we're going to be really honest, the impact investment sector is big in the UK. And it's partly big because of Big Society Capital, which was an initiative under David Cameron, which took a lot of assets that were sitting in bank accounts that were unused and basically moved them to a massive impact investor, Big Society Capital, who then seeded impact investment funds. So that was great and it capitalized the sector. The problem is they are still looking for really high growth startups. They basically are all looking for software-based high-tech startups, which means that you will only solve sort of some problems that still have a hockey stick growth curve. And you still can't get investment for ones that might solve a really tough problem, but they're not going to do it at the kind of scale that those investors are looking for because they're still looking for a return on their investment. And that's when we needed to look at venture philanthropy. Some of the foundations are starting to look at this. For example, Lego Foundation are really into this, but they are. this is kind of stuff that's happening in the last three years. And I think it will take a lot of time. What we've tried to do at Oxford but weren't super successful, but we're still working on it, 
was put together an impact investment fund among a number of UK universities, which would take a mixture of you know, uh, some impact investors, but also alumni donors and potentially some founders and create a fund that would invest in just university social ventures. Um, that was an obvious way to do it because at least what you could do is theoretically you could cover the first sort of 18 to 24 months of company operation, by which point impact investors will be more willing to then invest because you'd essentially de-risk the proposition for them. But honestly, this is a work in progress and we're not there yet. So I think the funding model for social ventures will be really hard. And one of the big challenges that universities looking to do this will be working on for the next probably 20 years. I think in the Netherlands, we have, um, there's a bit of movement to create more seed money than there used to be. I think for the social ventures, it's still extremely challenging because the, the constructions that they build, for example, is that they uh, combine the typical venture capital strategy with the government strategy. For So for every euro of venture capital money, the government puts one euro in there as well. And they just want to get the money back, but they don't need a return on, on the investment. So that sort of lowers the amount that you have to get back to actually make it worthwhile. Because from the venture capital perspective, out of the 10 companies they invest, in maybe one will make it so i do understand that they need to get a large uh, return on investment but to be honest um with these funds you still see that they tend to invest in the companies that have uh, a large exit potential and already have de-risked a lot of did a lot of de-risking in, uh, in their development so in the end if that really works i don't know we do have uh, from the, the government uh, funding body from NWO, we have a takeoff program, which works. So that's also for the social ventures where you could uh, apply for, I think, 25K as a grant to first see if you have uh, uh, for a feasibility study, is there a business model there? Uh, do you need to do some uh, feasibility on your uh, on your product? And then you can apply for a loan of up to 250,000 uh, from the top of my head. That works quite well, but I see a lot of these ventures still strand after this second phase because they are not prepared enough to go into the real world basically and uh, and apply for either venture capital or angel investors or uh, or something else out there so it's difficult to cross that bridge and for the neurocontrol group that we work in we sort of try to uh, i would almost say cheat a little bit so in the projects that we write we either under or overestimate the level of uh, the trl levels we use for the technology inventions so we can fit it in the uh, in the public funds and then the companies uh, can further develop but that's of course actually not the way we should do this uh, according to um, to the funds but yeah sometimes you have to <laughs> Really, yeah, really interesting. And these, um, I guess, structural or fundamental issues that then align with maybe more uh, social type ventures. And how do you how do you overcome that? And really, I guess it's it's interesting to hear from different countries as well. What are the some of the policies or the ways that uh, can really drive and drive and support that? I'd like to ask, or maybe move a bit towards talking about impact. You've kind of touched on it a little bit. And actually, uh, Yeti, I wanted to maybe start with you because I noticed something on the Care for Impact website, which I thought is really interesting, where you write, although I use the term impact in the name of my company, I am not a big fan of how it is used these days. So I'm really curious about that. You know, how do you um, maybe think feel or think about impact and how does that, uh, and yeah, also the title of your company, Care for Impact. So maybe you can elaborate a bit on that. 
Yeah, of course. Yeah, I thought you might be triggered by that. I don't have a better word. Let's start with that. But the problem with impact is these days, if we want to achieve something, but we don't really know how and we don't really know what, we just say we want to make impact. Like it's this fuzzy thing that can never be measured or or fully achieved. And that is something that also within the universities that I work with, I see them struggle. They want to make impact, but they say impact is something you cannot measure per definition, which I think it's not true. You just have to look look more careful and plan more careful in what is actually actually you what you want to reach do you want to make sure your knowledge is out there do you want to make sure uh, it becomes a, a, a commercial product that millions of people can use because these things they they need different strategies so i think the whole fuzziness that is sort of covering the, the impact part is is what is uh, bugging me <laughs> a bit so that's why why the statement there and um uh, what I do like about impact and not only talking about innovation is because a lot of times I saw researchers being disappointed because uh, what they have might not be turned into a product and then they feel like they failed. But I think that's that's never the case because in the research that you did to get to the point where you are, there is always uh, valuable information in there that can be used in one way or another. You just have to sit down. Uh, again and see where your impact might be and also forcing them only into publication only into patenting there are other ways out there to uh, to get your research out thanks Crystal Margaret do you want to add uh, or maybe give your perspectives on impact and, and what that means I guess impact is like innovation. These are very big, broad, subjective words, right? It's like peer review and, and success. Um, yeah, I think I think they're all subject to interpretation. But to me, I I always feel like researchers are doing translational research, no matter what they do. They're translating to knowledge, practice, product, or policy, and it's just about how you're translating it. And and so. I think Yeti for us in Australia, a lot of our researchers would probably be the opposite. It's like no one can see the impact of the research I'm doing and the knowledge I'm generating to add to, you know, the sector and to our, our knowledge base. And so we actually do, um, despite having the role models, despite having opportunities to learn, we still have this mindset that to truly succeed in academia, it's about an intellectual challenge that you're adding to great knowledge. Um, and so it's a, it's a, for us, it's about shifting that mindset and, and defining what is impact, right? Um, in that context. But I totally agree with you that knowledge in and of itself is also impact. And I loved how you spoke about how um, you measure it, because certainly through IMNIS, um, a lot of people will say, oh, well, mentoring is very soft. You know, what, what do you do with mentoring? You know, what does that mean? And it's like, well, actually, mentoring is a lot of work and it can be very structured if you support it right. You don't have to, you want flexibility, but you want to have targets and goals and things like that. Our survey is intense at the end. Just ask any of our mentees or mentors. And we measure impact in so many different ways. And we ask, you know, um, if we can shift the percentage of collaborations, if we can shift the, the perceived idea that I could work in industry, you don't actually have to be applying for the job, but just that you can see yourself there, that's impact. Um, so, so we do try to dig it down and measure it. And I agree with you, it can be measured, just really, really difficult to be. <laughs> it's hard. 
Can I add very quickly, um, perhaps this is because we're in a room of scientists, but I would, I would argue the entire field of social science is in fact about measuring impact, because ultimately it's deriving causality from social phenomena. There is, it's not that it can Yes, I'd wish for a social scientist <laughs> to read my surveys they, many times. Yeah, they, that, is, that is their entire purpose. I mean, it, it's sometimes it's funny when we deal with impact investors and they say something like, oh, you know, you've got to have a theory of change, you've got to prove this. And they're kind of like, what do you think I spent my last 20 years doing? <laughs> the Definitely, this the elusive topic, I think, or term impact. But uh, you you referenced as well um, measuring impact or, or finding ways uh, for, for measuring impact. And I was just wondering um, from your work, what you've come across and uh, Yeti, maybe even going back to something you said at the beginning, which was often uh, universities are so fixated on, uh, you know, we have technology, we need to license it. And this, we need to get a patent and that's how we measure our, uh, our success. Um, and I'm also curious, maybe from the social science perspective, how does that, how does that translate? So just uh, want an open question around what are some uh, ways that you've uh, come across or you think uh, uh, should be implemented around how can you measure the impact of research and especially around valorization? Um, so in the social sciences um, and the social ventures, um, we've moved, we haven't got a good system. Uh, we've got a system and obviously measurement, we're trading off cost to the entrepreneur of basically collecting that data. We don't want to put too much of a burden on them. So we, what we ask is that they basically pick one metric, which they think captures the volume of impact that they're having, that they would collect anyway. So for example, we had one called OxEd, and OxEd basically provides an assessment to children aged five to eight uh, to catch children falling behind in school. And so we said, okay, look, the obvious metric here might be either number of schools sold to or number of pupils that have taken the test. Right? So super easy. And then we can basically go back to the research councils, and say, you funded this research, we commercialized this research, and now 50,000 UK pupils have basically been tested with this. And that was quite an easy measurement of impact that was kind of quite neat to capture. It doesn't capture all the complexity, but uh, it was enough for reporting data. Yeah, I think, I think if you look back at what most of the TTOs are doing, it's basically counting the number of ideas that come in, then counting the number of patents that come out, and the number of licenses, <laughs> and the amount of money that that, that brings in. I would say none of these were any reflection of the success of the team because never count the money that is coming in because it fluctuates a lot especially if you have to deal with pharmaceutical solutions for example we would have a year where it would be millions and then we would have a year where we wouldn't even be 100k and also yeah if you count the number of patents that you file well then you just file more patents right because the easy it's one of the easiest things is to file a patent getting it approved is another one but i think that is uh, that is something that is that is difficult if i now look at the dutch uh, funding agencies uh, they are more into counting uh, and and evaluating the knowledge transfer moments and then they count the ones that are outside of, of typical um, uh, publications, but it's your presentations in conferences, but it's also uh, if you give a TEDx talk, if you transfer your knowledge to a company that will, I don't know, build a piece of software based on your knowledge. Uh, it's all these uh, more smaller things that uh, that you can also count. And I think that's a nice system to, uh, to actually see what is coming from, uh, from a project. 
Yeah, and some of those measurements are now being counted along with grants. So they're considered as metrics when, when universities submit different grants. It's only for certain grants. But I think, um, you know, they're counting who's, who's engaging with industry, how are they engaging with industry, why are they engaging with industry, how many pitches are they doing, you know, how many um, investment surveys are they invited to, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I love that it's starting to dig down into the detail. We've taken this approach with gender equity and women in STEM as well. You dig down into the detail of how many women are doing what and how many are part-time, full-time, how many are teaching, et cetera. So I think it's just about taking that very analytical approach and then introducing new policies, implementing them over time to see if they're sustainable and worthwhile. We, uh, we have a whole program called Pathway to Impact, which is really around coming up with metrics and indicators, uh, not just quantitative, but also qualitative, around how can you measure the impact of your external engagement as an institution. And it's, I mean, it's, it's a pretty big undertaking because it's hard sometimes to, you know, to, to really track what you're doing um, and be able to report back on it. I was curious about, we often talk about transfer, so technology transfer and knowledge transfer, which sounds quite transactional, like I've developed something and now I'm handing it over to uh, industry or to society or to, or to an external partner. So I was just uh, wondering, from your perspectives, to what extent can uh, external stakeholders be involved from an early stage? So Margaret, for example, you mentioned collaboration and how important that is and really in shaping ideas, shaping directions, but also, I guess, um, create, you know, co and uh, the concept of co-creation came up uh, as well at the beginning. So just wondering from your perspective, like how do you maybe, how can we move more from this concept of I've come up with an idea as a researcher or a technology or a, a potential social venture, how can I incorporate others from an earlier stage? I heard a really fantastic talk recently from a researcher and, and now an entrepreneur who said transactional collaborations are very, very common and often die in, in arguments, right? They'll, they'll stall at some point for some reason. The collaborations at work are the transformational collaborations where people actually have a conversation first. And I, I loved what Yeti said right at the beginning, where you focus on the invention, right? Focus on what you're actually doing. Find the common ground, connect the people who can make it happen. And 30 years over time, you'll see this amazing product or, or before that, right? So I, I think about an example at WeHire where a cancer drug was developed. It literally was a couple of scientists having a coffee had an idea and started talking. And, and it was just that co-creation process and the co-design and the trust and respect that was built on both sides all the way. And how can I help you? How can you help me? Rather than, you know, sort of pointing the finger in any kind of way. And that to me is, is absolutely critical for, you know, removing that that concept of transaction because there's nothing worse when industry feels like and I've, I've had industry leaders say this where they feel like an academic walks into their office when they're desperate for funding and they'll say give us some funding for this project that I've developed and I want to keep going and and that can be really confronting um, for an industry leader and and really damage relationships. So I think it's really important that communication aspect Chris is talking about. We need our researchers to understand and communicate well how they're pitching their research. 
And at what point that occurs, it needs to be much, much earlier in the conversation, much, much. Yeah, I can only agree. <laughs> and and I've been with the neurocontrol group for about two years, but they, they have been doing this for about 10 or 11 years now. As a, and, and they really started like, okay, we put the clinicians there, we put the engineers, we take the companies, we take the patient organizations, and together we're going to see where is the problem, what solution should we develop, and, and how can we, can we bring it further? And I mean, that sounds great. But in the beginning, uh, they had to learn each other's language. They had to understand. Uh, the same thing happened, as you, uh, as you mentioned, Marguerite. So they, they have a fully written plan and they show it to the companies. They say, sign here and the deadline is tomorrow, uh, which is something that, um, that doesn't work. And it really took a lot of time before they sort of started to understand each other in this. Because also the scientists didn't do that because they didn't think the, the opinion of the company was not important. But they did that because they were a bit... Uh, insecure about the plan and it had to be like great and detailed and complete before they had the confidence to actually show it to somebody else but yeah then you also have your deadlines and so this is something that really had to grow and to be honest this group came together because they had a financial incentive there was uh, a government body who said if you can put these people together and you can work on this topic then we will have a structured funding opportunity for you for the upcoming uh, so many years so it is also something that is not easy it doesn't come uh, right away but i do think that uh, you have to involve industry as early as possible because i think a cold transfer will never succeed uh, maybe just uh, uh, before we, we we wrap up i wanted to uh, just maybe a general question out is there are there any i feel we've covered a range of different uh, topics and areas and uh, it's been a really interesting conversation but is there anything that we haven't addressed where you think oh actually i'd like to i'd like to mention that or um or bring, uh, bring an element up? Maybe, uh, Chris, a, a question then to you. Uh, at least in STEM, or in, in kind of like more hard science, sometimes taking an idea from the lab to market can take 20, 30 years. And I just wonder, what is the time frame that you've experienced with the more social science-based uh, innovation inventors? Yeah, I, I think one interesting thing, which took me a while to realize, is when most people in the public think of a startup, they probably think of a tech startup and they're relatively quick. They usually probably have something like a kind of somewhere between maybe six months and three years as a kind of broad period. And then when universities think of basic startups from research, they just think of STEM. STEM's actually at like the far end of the spectrum because of the hard, really hard science involved, the IP protection that goes in, the teams of people involved. So universities like that's what a startup looks like. And it's not, that's the far end of the spectrum. So actually the social science stuff is much closer to the kind of more like the tech stuff. Sometimes it doesn't even have any tech involved, in which case it can be even faster. The one thing we really realized is social scientists and humanities people don't have hard IP for the main, right? We're lucky if they have software or data, but a typical social scientist probably has something equating to a theory or a framework. For example, we had one working, we worked with in Bristol, she focused on how large organizations create equality and diversity initiatives, how they do it well, which people you have to be involved with, how do you sustain it over time? Really difficult questions that have been the focus of her research. She's not going to create a software app to do that. She does want to commercialize it. She wants to deliver it to lots of companies. She's building a consultancy, basically. That's what she's doing. Well, a consultancy doesn't take that long to start up. There's not a lot of capital expenses which need to go in. So it was more just about trying to get the first customer 
so that she could kind of work out what her kind of basic approach was and then building out people that could support her to do the work. And that, that's probably, you could do that easily in 12 months. It was mm-hmm. the kind of um, appetite to be an entrepreneur, how, how, how much she wanted to dip her toes into the water first, um, but it's much, much faster. So it's, uh, it's very different. And universities, frankly, weren't really, at least in the UK, weren't well set up to do that because their whole mindset was like, oh, where's the patterns? Yeah. <laughs> and that's a great thing because they're expensive and they don't work half the time anyway. I think maybe related to that, there is one topic that we, we might have missed uh, today. So uh, this is this is quite a fast pro- process that Chris is, uh, is discussing. And, and also uh, you have, uh, you can generate revenues quite fast. If I look at the STEM uh, projects, but but actually most of the, the startups that I work with, it's super slow, but also because it's so slow, this whole point of where you should actually transition from being a researcher into an entrepreneur, and also where, the point where you should actually quit your academic uh, career, becomes a bit fuzzy and because it's so fuzzy sometimes it just doesn't happen because you are keep postponing there are always reasons to say you know in three months in six months in a year in when i joined one of the scientists in uh, in in the in the startup for me it was really clear if you want to work in a startup you have to quit your job so i did that and i switched to a startup which is of course financially a huge risk because you go from a steady income to zero in uh, in my case uh, 13 days which was <laughs> a bit of a, a challenge but uh, but we managed but um, for a lot of the scientists that's not the case so I was wondering if how you deal with that uh, in the social sciences uh, the, the scientists that you work with and also with Marguerite I don't know how that is uh, for you um, in, in the social sciences they can usually run in parallel for quite a long time because it's essentially looks like a consultancy at the start so they can basically get some clients over the line and maybe they have to work a bit harder there's the advantage exactly as you say they get to keep the security of their job or that hard-won tenure and then they can basically say, is there enough deal flow to go full time on this? Or is there enough deal flow to employ somebody else to do this? And so I actually think it's an easier transition. I don't think you can do that as much with some of the science stuff. It's sometimes the risk is mitigated because they just take in venture capital. So they know that there's funding for X period. Um, but yeah, that's, that's basically how we structure it. It's a pro and a con. I think the con is exactly as you say, they can avoid actually doing it. And then things that had really big growth potential never achieve it because it stays as a side gig. And that's that's a that's a big downside. And that loses us, you know, the people who are trying to sort of say to the government, you need to fund this social science and have amazing impact. We miss out on some home runs because they just become like singles, basically. But um, it does at least make the transition easier. I think it's true, though, that what you said about, you know, you have VC, but it's only for a set period of time. And, and that's a risk, right? And so even though researchers are risk takers in their research they're not necessarily risk takers in their careers and that's where this entrepreneurial mindset of of giving something a go and being open to failing because the failure aspect in Australia is a big deal right that we do not have a culture of failure and then own your badge of failure and continue it's very very different to the U.S. you know a, a lot of people feel fear failure and and are very intimidated by it but I also come back to this concept that we're we're often in discussions and in debates about should we spin out a company or should we just collaborate with a large one and I think right now if I had to to peg a guess it would be an educated guess it would be that Australia is leaning towards collaborating with large companies right now partly because of our size 
partly because most of our sector is small companies that are desperately trying to scale. And then there's just this dearth in between that um, really struggle to gain traction. And that's where the mid-stage accelerator can actually make a huge difference. And so there's one here called And Health that's focused on digital health. So it is a, a tech focus, but it's, it's working to really take something that's already grown and taking it to that next stage. And so to, to sort of come back to the original question of do scientists actually get out there and do this? Yes, they do. But that, that risk aspect is, is a significant barrier to overcome. I've also um, heard very often from industry leaders who are very focused, you know, they've had their MBA training, they've been executives for a long time, and they go, oh, scientists can never be CEOs, right? And, and that mindset is a little bit about culture too. So the, the beauty of the engagement program is that those industry leaders are now engaging with scientists and seeing what they can bring. And so I, I like to think that's also shifting that mindset. I think uh, on that as well, it's, it's, um, it comes down to having different, different pathways. So as you said, whether it's spinning out a company, whether it's collaborating with someone else, whether it's realizing maybe I'm a great researcher, but I, and I am entrepreneurial, but maybe I'm not an entrepreneur. I don't want to be the CEO of the company. So really exploring and having the opportunity to explore these different pathways is really, really important. I'd uh, like to thank you all for a really interesting discussion. As I said before, we've covered a range of topics. I think, you know, some of the key elements really around the openness, transparency, communication, and really embedding these skills within um, students, researchers, staff uh, in, in a, ver a variety of different ways, and the concept of demystifying entrepreneurship and valorization and what that means. So I'd really like to thank you for your time and for sharing your insights. And again, I'd like to thank uh, those who joined us. And uh, unless there's any final comments from uh, any of you, then I would, uh, would wrap up the session. And thank you again for that. As long as it was useful, that's fantastic. Thank Definitely. You. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to today's discussion. Stay tuned for the next episode on the Research Valorization podcast series. Follow us on Spotify and LinkedIn, and don't forget to sign up for our podcast newsletter at uin.org.